The following sermon was recorded in the Westminster Chapel on Sunday evening, the 9th of June, 1957. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is preaching from the Book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 40 and 41. And we join the doctor now during the early moments of this sermon. Such amazing and startling results. You noticed what we were told the same day. There were added unto the believers, unto the disciples and their followers, about 3,000 souls. Now, here I say we are reminded at once as to what the real business of the Christian church is. Our business is to proclaim this message, the same message that was there proclaimed by the Apostle Peter. It is a message of redemption. It is a message to mankind showing it how it can be saved, how it can be delivered from this present evil world and reconciled unto God. That is what Christianity is about. Christianity, I say, is this message and the power that accompanies this message, the power of the Holy Spirit. And its business is to do to men and women what was done on that occasion to those 3,000 people. Now, let's look at them. What was your idea, I wonder, of Christianity? How did you think of it? Uh, did you think of it as something that uh, is true of us uh, by an accident of nationality or birth? Did you think that we are made Christians by being christened when we were children? Did you think that we made ourselves Christian by doing good and by avoiding certain sins and certain forms of evil? What was your notion, your conception of Christianity? Well, whatever it was, I'm here to assert that what Christianity really is about and what it is meant to do is the precise thing that it did to these 3,000 people on that occasion so long ago, on this very night, which Sunday night, the day of Pentecost, that is when it happened. Now then, let's look at them. Look at these people before they heard this message. What do we find about them? Well, there are a number of terms used about them. We needn't stay with this. We are told that at any rate they were filled with curiosity. You see, when people began to hear of this astonishing thing that had happened to these disciples, as they were called, they had known them, they had seen them, they had seen them going about the place with Jesus of Nazareth, and they had known how after he had been crucified and had been buried, that these men had said that he had risen again and that they'd seen him, but nobody, of course, believed it. And they knew how these people kept on meeting together, just a little group of them, about 120, and now they suddenly hear that something extraordinary has happened to these people, that these men, who seemed to be rather nervous before, and who indeed had been rather sad for a while after our Lord had been put to death, they hear that these men now are full of joy, that no one can restrain them, and that's still more remarkable. They're able to speak in strange languages. Now, these uh, disciples, most of them, were very ordinary men. They were fishermen, as you know, some of them. They were all men who belonged to the artisan class. They were not great scholars. They were not mighty philosophers. They were not even trained Pharisees. They were ordinary workmen. And yet suddenly the news goes round that these men are speaking in strange languages. 
So I read that when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded. That's one thing we read about them, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, and all other known countries at that time. There they were all together. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. They're drunk. This is but drunkenness. Now then, there they are, you see, before they heard this preaching. Filled with a spirit of curiosity, what is this about, they say? What is this? Ah, there may be some in this congregation who are here out of mere curiosity, like these people were. They heard something extraordinary was happening. They say, what's this? Let's go and see. People still do that, don't they, as they did it 2,000 years ago. Then they were filled with a sense of criticism. They said, what is this thing? Who are these men? What is this? And some of them were full of scoffing, we are told, and mockery. Some said, this is just lunacy. They're either drunk or they've gone mad. What is this? Look at them. Listen to them. These men are filled with new wine. Now, there is the condition, do you see, in which these people were. Didn't believe it. Full of uncertainty, full of doubt, full of criticism full of an arrogant kind of scoffing. What is this? But you remember how we are told they were at the end? They gladly received his word. What a transformation. The next thing I am told about them is this, that with gladness and singleness of heart they did eat their meat together. What a different picture. Praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, my friends, that is what Christianity does. That is Christianity. It is this message, it is this powerful message that can change a scoffing, critical, curious, almost blaspheming people into men and women who are filled with a sense of peace and of joy and of gladness and who delight in the Lord Jesus Christ and who want to spend all their time in the company of his people and of his followers. That is what Christianity is. Here it is, the first sermon, as it were, preached under the auspices of the Christian church and that is what it did. It changed these people. It made new men and women of them. Is that uh, your notion of Christianity? Has it done that to you? Christianity is meant to make people glad, to make them rejoice, to give them a great sense of peace, to give them a happiness that they've never known before. That is exactly, I've read the terms that are used about these people, gladly, gladness and singleness of heart, Praising God. And not only that, you see, 
but the very fact that they thus met together and continue to meet together and to keep together tells us about their courage and their boldness. They knew very well that the Jewish authorities and indeed the Roman authorities with them as well were opposed to this new teaching and to this new sect as they called it. And they knew very well that by aligning themselves with these people they were subjecting themselves to the possibility of persecution. In spite of that, they did it. And they did it gladly, they did it happily. I'm asking a simple question. Has Christianity come to you like that? Do you know this gladness? Do you know this joy? Are you praising God in your heart? And are you so certain of this truth that you're ready to face the persecution of the world today, ready to face even death if needs be, because of this knowledge that has come to you? That's Christianity. That is genuine Christianity. That's the thing you find running right through this book of the Acts of the Apostles. That's the thing you find in the epistles. The Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say unto you, Rejoice! Rejoice evermore. Now then, the question therefore that we obviously must ask is this. If that is the change that was produced in these people, what was it that produced the change? And that is why I'm calling your attention to these two verses in particular. Here is the answer. The first thing obviously that accounts for the change is the preaching of the Apostle Peter. And I mean at this point not so much what he said as the way in which he said it. Peter stood up in the presence of them all and, they, and he began to speak. And most of his sermon, as you notice, consists in quotations from the Old Testament, uh, plus an exposition concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Ah, yes, it wasn't a mere recital of facts that did it. There was something about him. There was an authority. In other words, it's just this. The Holy Spirit had come upon him as he had come upon these other disciples. Suddenly, as they were met together there in prayer, there was a sound as of a mighty rushing wind, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And the explanation of Peter's power and efficacy is this, that he was filled with the Spirit. You notice the words that are used? And with many other words did he testify, which really means this, earnestly testified and exhorted them, pleaded with them, besought them, urged them. He was filled with the Spirit. He was preaching to use the language of the Apostle Paul in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And as he was uttering the words, the Holy Spirit was empowering the words and these men and women who, who were listening, they suddenly felt a power dealing with them. They felt a conviction. They felt themselves being shaken. And they cry out, you remember, in an agony saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Conviction. Now that is a conviction that is alone produced by the Holy Spirit. Peter, I say, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he, was, and he was being used by the Spirit. The Spirit was speaking through him. And these men began to see the truth of what they'd done and of their terrible position. And they began to be alarmed and terrified. And then they cry out. 
and then they believe. It is first and foremost to be explained, then I say, by the power of the Holy Ghost. And the second explanation is the message of the Apostle Peter. With many words, with many other words, uh, did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. In other words, in addition to all the message, the sermon that we have reported here, and it's nothing but a synopsis, let us remember, the Apostle Peter added many other words. He expanded it. This is just, I say, a summary of it all. He explained it and expounded it and he appealed to them. He pressed it upon them. He was a man who, having seen the thing clearly in the light of the power of the Spirit, saw their desperate plight, and so he put his message to them with this amazing clarity and conviction. And the result was that these 3,000 people underwent this tremendous change and became filled with gladness and with joy. Very well, the important thing for us then is this, isn't it? What was this message that he preached? And here the answer is given us quite plainly in the chapter. I divide it into three sections. Here's the first. The first thing that he preached to these people was their need of being saved from the world. With many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves or be saved from this untoward generation. Now, my friends, this is a point that needs to be put very plainly at the present time. Save yourselves, he said. Be saved from. Who is he addressing? Well, he's addressing individuals. He is addressing individual persons who are standing there and listening to him. The message of Christianity is essentially and primarily individual and personal. I'm emphasizing this because the impression is so frequently given today that the message of Christianity is entirely social. You notice that the first sermon preached by the Christian church was not a sermon to men and women telling them how to put the world in order. It wasn't a sermon addressed to them telling them to bend themselves together and to send up petitions to the Roman government and tell them not to do this and to start doing something else. Not a word of that. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And those who give the impression that the message of Christianity is a message which is designed how to save the world and to put the world in order, I say are denying the preaching of the Apostle Peter. The task of the Christian church tonight is not to put the world right. I'm not going to preach to you about the hydrogen bomb or the atomic bomb. Did you expect me to? You might very well have done so. Because the church so often gives that impression today, if only we can stop this making of this atomic bomb, then the world's going to be all right. And we protest against this and that. We are going to put the world right. We're going to make the world better. And as the world will be better, we'll all be happier. Not a bit of it. Save yourselves from the world. 
Whether we like it or not, my dear friends, the New Testament, you know, has not a word about making the world perfect. Indeed, it says the exact opposite. The New Testament teaches plainly and clearly that the world is a sinful and a doomed world. There is not a word in the New Testament to suggest that this world is gradually going to be improved or made better by the actions of men so that all our problems will be solved and we'll all be perfectly happy. Not a word of it. It says that evil men will wax worse and worse. It says there will be wars and rumors of wars. It says that the world in its sin is under the judgment and under the condemnation of God and that God is going to judge it and he's going to destroy it. This world will never be put right. Whether they use the atomic bomb or not, I don't know. But there will be wars and men will still behave in the mad way that they're now behaving. And you and I can waste our breath as much as we like and we'll change nothing. The world has always been like this. It will be like this. The world is doomed. Peter's sermon was not an appeal and an exhortation to these people to improve this untoward generation and to stop it doing this and that. No, no. He says, come out of it. Save yourselves out of it. Get away from it. Though the world is doomed, you, he says, as individuals can be saved. That's Christianity. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now, my friends, it's still the message. This is an individual message. Whatever may happen in the future to this world historically, you and I can be saved from it. We can be right with God and we can praise his name and we can be filled with this joy and gladness with which these 3,000 people were filled in spite of the world being what it is. Though wars may come and famines and pestilences and earthquakes and terrible things beyond our imagination, the promise of the gospel is that we can be saved and delivered as individuals. That's the first thing. But then let me hurry to the second. Why must we be saved from this world? Why should we desire even to be saved? Why does Peter exhort them to be saved? Well, you notice he gives his answer. He says, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now, what's the meaning of untoward? Well, we can use a number of other terms to translate that. We can use the word crooked, we can use the word warped, you can use the word perverse, you can use the word forward. They're all perfectly true. And what Peter exhorts these people to do is to save themselves from such a world, from such a generation of people. Now, in the case of that particular generation, the thing is so obvious and so clear, isn't it? That was the generation that had crucified the Son of God and had cried out, saying, Away with him, crucify him. That was the generation that had witnessed his presence in the world and yet had turned its back upon him and had scoffed at him. They'd done terrible things. Save yourselves from them, says Peter. But you know, this is still the same. 
And the message of the gospel comes to every man this evening in exactly the same way. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. What's it mean? Well, it means this. That we need to save ourselves from it, be saved from it, because it's so evil and so bad as it is, apart from anything else. Let me take up some of the meanings of this word untoward in order to show you what I mean. Be saved from the world, says the Christian message, because it's got a warped mind. This untoward generation, it's warped. What does that mean? Well, you know that something that is warped is something that is distorted and twisted. It's out of shape. Instead of being straight, it's been all mangled and twisted. It's warped. It's shorter than it ought to be. It isn't stretched out as it was meant to be. It's tangled and twisted and distorted and shapeless. And what the apostle is saying is that the world in sin is like that. And that we need to be saved out of it and from it because of its terrible condition. Now, that is something that applies particularly to the mind of the world. To its outlook. So what you see he is saying in effect can be put like this. Save yourselves, he says, from this generation whose mind was too warped and twisted and perverted to appreciate the Son of God. God has done the most marvelous thing that even God has ever done. The God who formerly had raised up prophets and teachers and leaders for the nation of Israel has now sent his only son into the world. And there he stood before them, Jesus of Nazareth. They looked at him, but they couldn't appreciate him. They said, this fellow, they saw his miracles, didn't impress them. What's the matter with them? They've got warped minds. Their minds were too twisted and perverted, too ignoble uh, to be able to realize who he was and what he was and what he was doing. Their minds were too small. They had a warped mind. And isn't that still the trouble with the world? It has no appreciation of the Christian message and the Christian gospel. It dismisses it. It despises it. It says there's nothing in it. It's something that's played out. It's not a bit thrilled by it. There are highly intelligent people in the world tonight who dismiss all this and spend their time in reading novels. That's a warped mind. My dear friend, let me put it to you personally. Have you found the glory of this book? Is your mind big enough to take this in? Or do you find it dull and boring? Believe me, if you don't appreciate this book beyond all others, it's because you've got a warped mind. You belong to the untoward generation. You who are interested in personalities and in great people, have you stood in wonder and amazement before Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God? Do you see that he stands alone and on his own? And are you filled with a sense 
of wonder as you contemplate him. If not, I say it's because your mind is warped. It's too small. But of course the other characteristic of the warped mind is that while it fails to appreciate the glorious and the divine, it delights in that which is primitive and ugly and debased. Isn't this a perfect description of the modern world? Isn't this the truest thing of all concerning it that its mind has become warped because of sin? You see it in all realms, don't you? The great classical music is no longer appreciated as it was. Before art becomes interesting to people today, it must be odd. Before a poet is appreciated, he must be a drunkard and a voluptu voluptuous, almost incestuous person. That's a warped mind. Read the criticisms of the critics. Read their criticisms of books and of plays and of films and of everything else. They always poke fun at the decent and the clean and the moral. The only thing that really grips them and moves them is that which is suggestive and ugly and twisted and perverted and diseased. You see, that's a warped mind. And what the gospel urges us to do tonight is to save ourselves from such a world and from such a mentality. Its mind is warped. It has no use for Christ and for God. And it worships its own monstrosities, its own vile and foul creations. It's twisted. Its mind is warped. Ah, but the other thing that is equally true of it is that it's crooked in its morals. This word uh, untoward not only means warped, it also means crooked. It means corrupt, it means evil. And Peter was saying that about that generation. It lived in sin and it delighted in sin. That's why it wanted to get rid of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was because he convicted them of sin and preached a life of holiness and told them to deny themselves and take up the cross daily and to go after him. They didn't want it. He was disturbing the life they liked and therefore they said, away with him, crucify him. It was an untoward, a crooked generation. How often is that stated in the New Testament? The Apostle Paul calls it a crooked and perverse generation. And he gives a terrifying description of them. You'll find it in the first chapter of his epistle to the Romans. If you want to know how crooked and vile and ugly that ancient world was, read there that first chapter the second half of the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, and you'll find that he tells you that this is the sort of life they were living. That having turned their backs upon the Creator and the glorious God, they were worshipping beasts and birds and insects and creeping things, and that in their morals they had become foul and had sunk to the depths, Men putting aside the natural use of the woman were abusing themselves with one another. And so were women. That's what he says. That's the crookedness. 
That's the untoward character. That's the perversion. And he ends by saying, who knowing that the judgment of God is upon them that commit such things and that they're worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Is it surprising that the apostle should have said, save yourselves, be saved from this untoward generation? And is it surprising that I, in my little way, am repeating his message tonight? Save yourselves, beloved people, unless you're already saved from this untoward generation that has no use for God, that has no use for Christ, that has no use for the Sermon on the Mount, that has no use for cleanliness and morality and purity, but lives in the gutters with all its perversions, sexual and mental, with all its broking in sin, with all its evil and foulness and ugliness and cruelty and harshness, I say, save yourselves from it. It's so foul in itself, apart from what is going to follow it. And finally, it's an arrogant and a froward spirit. It goes contrary to what is demanded of it and contrary to what is right. It defies God in spite of his laws, in spite of all he has made so plain and clear. It arrogantly stands up against it. And isn't that still true this evening? Surely we in this century have seen the judgments of God abroad in the earth. With all our cleverness and learning, we've already had these two world wars. What is it? It's the judgment of God. It's God withholding his restraining influences. It's God allowing men to reap the benefit of his own actions. It's God saying, very well, you've said to me that you can go on without me. Go on without me and see what you make of your world. It's God withholding the gracious restraining influences of his Holy Spirit and allowing men to stew in his own juice and to reap the whirlwind which he has sown for himself. That's what's happening. And yet man is still arrogantly defying God. Is it surprising that the message is save yourselves from this untoward generation? It's so vile and evil in and of itself. Do you want to be involved in that? Are you happy in it? Are you going on in that? I say look at it, analyze it. Take your newspapers. If you don't believe me, read them. Do you belong to that sort of society? Is that the life that you really partake of? I say, look at it and see it and escape from it. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And he has a second reason for urging this. And that is that not only is it like that in and of itself, but it's perishing. It is, as I say, under the judgment of God. The Lord Jesus Christ himself had said that. He had said that he was going to come back again into the world to judge it. The world in sin is under the judgment of God. Let's be perfectly clear and plain about this on this Whit Sunday night. 
It is the great message of the Bible from beginning to end. God once judged the world in the flood. He is going to judge the world again. Every one of us will have to stand before God and give an account of the deeds done in the body in this life. It is coming. And the world that is under sin and under the devil, the world that is untoward, is going to be condemned. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be cast into a lake of perdition. It's going to suffer agonies. That is the fate of the world. The world is under the judgment and the wrath of God, and it will descend upon it. Now the, whole, the Old Testament's full of these judgments of God, and they're only pale adumbrations of the judgment that is coming. The whole Bible is pointing to it. Read your book of Revelations. Read the sermons of the Son of God. They're all pointing to it. The judgment of the world is certainly coming. And the apostle indicated that to these people at Jerusalem. And he said, can't you see that people who are living such a life can expect nothing but utter perdition? Save yourselves from it ere it be too late. Before the wrath descends, come out of it. Be separate from it. For if you belong to it when the judgment comes, there is no hope for you. You will be destroyed. You will be punished eternally with an everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. That's what he said to them. With many words, other words, did he earnestly testify and exhort and plead with them, saying, he could see it, the Spirit had made it plain to him, and he had compassion upon their souls, and he says, while this time, come unto it. Wasn't that the whole message of John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress? Christian suddenly realized he was in the city of destruction. So he comes out of it and escapes. It's the only thing to do. Very well, that's the reason why we need to be saved. Let me just say a word on the last heading, which is this. How can we be saved? How are we to be saved? Oh, I thank God it's so simple. It's so plain and it's so clear. It is something that can happen to you here and now. You see, it happened to these 3,000 there and then. What did Peter tell them? Well, we are told exactly, aren't we? Did Peter say to them, Well, now then, if you realize that you belong to an untoward generation and that you're liable to this terrible judgment, come out of it and at once decide to live a better life. Start making new resolutions tomorrow morning. Say you're going to stop this and do that. And if you only go on doing that, you'll be all right. Nothing of the sort. That would never change these people from what they were into these people who began to rejoice and gladly receive the word and praise God and know that all was well. No, no, that's not Christianity. What is it? Well, here it is. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. 
and they begin to rejoice. What does he mean by this? Well, another translation, if you like, is this. They that willingly embraced his words, believed his message. Here they are, you see, listening to this message of the Apostle Peter, and they're disturbed, they're made unhappy. And they begin to cry out and say, men and brethren, what shall we do? What was his message? Well, I've been telling you. You see, the apostles' message about their sin and about their personal sinfulness had come home to them. This message about the judgment had suddenly come home to them. And they suddenly saw themselves as men and women under the judgment of God. They'd come to the meeting out of a spirit of curiosity. What is this, they said. What's happened to these men? Are they drunk? Or have they suddenly become psychological? At first they were quite happy about themselves. And they were just looking on the spectators. But as he preached, they began to see themselves. He was talking to them. They're sinners. They're in this position. And they must come out of it. What can they do? Ah, all that had come home. Has it come home to you? Have you seen yourself as a sinner? Do you realize the kind of life you've been living? Do you realize it's abhorrent to God and hateful to him? Do you realize that you're a sinner in the sight of God because you haven't loved him with all your being and haven't kept his holy laws? We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Have you visualized yourself as I'm speaking, standing before God in the judgment? You'll have to. Have you visualized yourself dying on your deathbed and going out of this world? It's going to happen to you quite soon. We're all going to die. Have you faced it? Have you seen it? Have you asked yourself, where am I going? What shall I be able to say when I stand before God? Will my life satisfy? Have you faced that? Face it now. These people did, and they saw their desperate plight. And they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then, you see, Peter had been telling them the answer already. What had he been doing? Well, you notice that his sermon was entirely about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. You're looking at me and my companions, he says, and you don't understand us. Some of you think we are drunk. Others think that we are taken up in some odd psychological condition. Ah, you're wrong. What is this? This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is the thing that God had prophesied. This is the Spirit of God. That's why we're happy. That's why we're filled with boldness and joy, as you see. You've known us. You've known us, many of you. You've known all that's been happening. And you see the transformation. What is it? It's what Christ has done to us. Who's Christ? He's the Jesus of Nazareth whom you've crucified. That's what he said to them. He told them about the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, you and your rulers took him with cruel hands, and you crucified him. And you did so because you didn't realize who he was, nor what he was. You thought he was only a man and just a carpenter. He was the Son of God. He was the Lord, the eternal Son of God. He is the Christ, the Deliverer, the Messiah. You killed him, and you thought you'd finished with him. But 
God raised him from the dead. And we are the witnesses of this resurrection. We saw him. He's been with us 40 days. He went back to heaven. And as he promised, he has sent down this power of the Holy Ghost. That's what this is. And of course, in saying that, he explained to them what it meant. If Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God, what was he doing in this world? Why did he ever come into it? Because that is what has happened. He is the Son of God. His resurrection was but the final proof of it. Why did he come into the world then? Well, Peter's been telling them. He came to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer. God hath visited and hath redeemed his people. How has he done it? Well, like this. Man is in sin, he's guilty, and he can do nothing about it. God sent his own Son into the world to deal with the problem of man's sin and man's guilt. This is why he came. He came to die for us and for our sins. He came to taste death for every man. And when he went to that cross, God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Had you realized it, my friend, all the sins you've ever committed, if you believe in him, you will know that they were laid on Christ and that he bore them in his own body on the tree. God smote you in him. He dealt with your sins. He's punished your sins in Christ. And therefore, he offers you a free pardon here and now. You needn't wait a second. You've got nothing to do. God justifieth the ungodly. God justifieth sinners. Christ died for sinners. That's the message. That's what Peter said to these people. He said, you're crying out and you're saying, men and brethren, what shall we do? And you're right in asking that, but I'll tell you the answer. Here it is. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And I've just been telling you what that means. He says, repent, realize your sinfulness, realize you can do nothing about it, turn away from it, but above all, he says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. In other words, believe this message concerning him, that God sent him into the world to bear your sins. And to bear the punishment of your sins. So that he having borne the punishment, you are free. And God forgives you and regards you as if you had never sinned. And gives you the positive holiness and righteousness of Christ himself. That's the message. Believe that, says the apostle. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Believe that, said Peter, and you'll be made as happy as we are. And they were. You see, it happened to the 3,000. There they are, desperate and alarmed. They believe the message. There and then, they receive the joy. They continued, eating their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God. Why? Well, for this wonderful good news that their sins were blotted out, that they had nothing to do, that Christ had done it all. They receive it as a free gift, and they have become the children of God. 
That's the message. Repentance. Realizing our sinfulness in the sight of God and our sin against God. Hating it. Desiring to turn from it and to be delivered from it. Giving ourselves to Christ and going after him. Coming out of the world. Whatever it may do or say, it'll laugh at us, it'll persecute us, what's it matter? We know our sins are forgiven, that we are children of God. And though the world collapse round and about us, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That's it. Be saved from this untoward generation. And they that gladly received his word were baptized and received the gift. My dear friend, where are you? Are you ready to face death and God and judgment? When the world is judged and condemned, where will you be? If you remain with that world, you'll go to its destruction. Everlasting destruction. But if you have seen it all this evening, and if you're alarmed and terrified at your condition and your position, you have nothing to do but to gladly receive this word about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has died for your sins. And your sins will be blotted out forever. You will become a child of God and an heir of eternal bliss. And you'll begin to know this gladness, this joy, this desire to praise God that the 3,000 experience, and you'll be able to face the future of your life in this world and in death and before the very judgment throne of God without a fear and without a tremor, for you will know that all is well between you and God, for God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Oh, I beseech you. I would imitate Peter. I exhort you earnestly. Be saved from this untoward generation. Receive the word. Gladly. Tell God you receive it. Cast yourself upon he has love and mercy and compassion and ask him by the Holy Spirit to make it more and more plain to you and he will receive you and bless you and you will be saved for time and for eternity. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. 
You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.